0: You are listening to audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. We will now join Pastor Ryan McAllister as he brings us the message for today. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here on New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve, everyone. Hope you had a great Christmas. I hope that um, your time with your family was well spent, or if you didn't have time to, or if you didn't get a chance to go see your family, that you had a time with people that you love and care about, and uh, that you remember the the goodness of our Savior Jesus Christ and remember His birth and and are awaiting His second coming. Uh, we are still in the Book of Luke. We're in chapter two. This is going to be our last Sunday on the birth narrative of Christ. Uh, The first two chapters are typically called the birth narrative of Jesus, the infancy narrative, Uh, and it ends with Jesus about 12 years old at the temple, and we're not actually going to talk about that particular story today, but I wanted to let you know kind of where it ends. And then next week, we're going to be starting a new section of Luke. Chapter 3 starts this new section of Luke, so uh, there'll be new graphics and everything. It'll It'll be fun. Um, so it's going to be good, and I hope that you stay with us as we go through the book of Luke. We're going to go ahead and read from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 22 through 40, 22 through 40. It should be up on the screen for you, but if you don't want to look up on the screen, you want I'd encourage you to look inside your own Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew, um, or you can download it uh, through the Bible app. Let's read this together. Luke 2, 22 through 40. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna Of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Gal- into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very interesting story of two people who see the child Jesus when he is brought to the temple He's being brought to the temple because the people of Israel are commanded that their children be given the sign of the covenant. This is the sign that is given to Abraham. The the male children are to be circumcised. It is a, a sign of God's covenant with the people of Abraham, the people of Israel. And this happens on the eighth day of a child's after a child's, a male child's birth. And there's also this time period for the mothers where they have to be purified because they've been, they've just given birth. And if you remember, if you go back and remember, this is why it's, it's useful to stick around for a little while, Uh, because we did a study on the book of Leviticus a couple of months ago. And we studied through and talked about how the laws of purification had to do with blood. If you came into contact with blood, then that made you impure. And so there was a time period that you had to make for your purification. Women who come into contact with blood multiple times during the year, every month, and also at birth are given a prescription on how they are to be purified. This is not because, and remember purity and purity stuff, that's not about um, them being sinful. This is about cleanliness before the Lord because before the Lord we must all come with clean hands and we want to tidy up and we want to be uh, made clean before him so it's not really anything to do with sin necessarily but there is still this reminder that being in touch with blood usually your blood remains on the inside so if it's outside that's usually a sign of bad things it's usually a sign of death blood is kind of a symbol of death and so when you become before the lord who is the giver of life you must cleanse from those symbols of death away from you and women after they give birth they have a period of time about 38 days or so where they are to be purified but it's interesting in this passage it actually says that um, it says their purification Um, so there's a there's a sense in which the child is also being purified at this time because the child has to stay with its mother. And so it's interesting that Jesus is identified with Mary in this moment. But I want to review a couple of things or talk about a couple of things in this passage. And by the way, um, Pastor Reed was supposed to preach today, uh, but he's not been feeling well, so I had to prepare this a little bit with a little less time than normal um, and so I don't have every single one of my notes up on the screen. So you see Isaiah 52 up there. I'm going to get to that in a second, so don't worry, I'm getting there. Don't worry, I'm getting there. Um, but I wanted to go through a couple of things. First, this first little uh, couple of verses where it talks about how they go to Jerusalem. They were in Bethlehem. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Caesar puts out a census. He says, everybody, I want to do a census. You have to go back to your hometown, uh, your town of ancestry. And so Joseph and Mary go from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the command of Caesar. But what we talked about last week is that it's not really Caesar who was behind this. Caesar thinks that he's controlling things. Caesar thinks that he's a God on earth. Caesar thinks that he has brought peace. But it's really God working behind the scenes because this is how God moves Mary and Joseph, who were living in Nazareth, to this little town called Bethlehem. But then we moved again from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And this is a movement from this this insignificant, meager town of Bethlehem to the significant and prominent city of Jerusalem. This movement is seen throughout Christ's life, and it is foreshadowed here. It's kind of given a symbolic understanding that Jesus will be going to Jerusalem. This is his goal, where he will end up. You also notice in this beginning section, Mary and Joseph are devout and obedient. They make sure that they are doing what is prescribed to them in the law of Moses. They love God and they want to obey his commands because of that love. And so they go and they obey. Mary and Joseph are put into the same category as these other individuals we've been introduced to in the book of Luke who were devout followers of God we got introduced to Zechariah a priest and his wife Elizabeth both righteous and devout we are introduced to Mary and Joseph both righteous and devout and soon we're going to be introduced to two more we're going to be introduced to Simeon and to Anna both righteous and devout and these people use the same, these same words to kind of describe them, but notice how they're from all over the place. They're different people from different situations, and still their hearts belong to the Lord, their actions guided by his word. So now we're introduced to this man, Simeon. Simeon is described with those two words specifically in the passage, that he was righteous. Another way to say righteous is just. And devout. Spurgeon said that this is a complete character. He is just. That means the way he deals with people, the way that he deals with human beings, is right and good. His standing amongst men is good and devout. His heart is turned towards the Lord. He is a complete person, one who deals with his fellow man with justice, one who deals with the Lord in devotion. He wasn't a hypocrite. When you lack one or the other, if you're a devout to the Lord, your heart is turned towards him and you care about what the Lord cares about and yet disregard people, you will be lopsided and be neither just nor devout. And if you deal justly with individuals, if you deal justly with people, if you are right in all of your actions, but care nothing for the Lord, you'll never be truly just. And so, Simeon wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't one who was acting. He truly cared about what the Lord cares about, and he truly dealt with people well. And we're told this about Simeon, something really interesting. We have seen the Holy Spirit through these first two chapters moving in people and directing people to say things. The Holy Spirit comes upon people and they say things. In fact, um, Simeon, uh, it doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit came upon him and then he sang the song. This is before the Holy Spirit came upon Simeon, before he's even seeing Christ before he has come to him, says that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. Simeon lived a life of pure devotion to the Lord and directed by the Holy Spirit. So much so that he was directed at the precise moment when the Lord's Christ would arrive at the temple. The Holy Spirit told him to go, go to the temple. He was living in the Spirit. But what I also find so interesting about Simeon is that if you were told, you or I, if we're told, hey, by the way, this is when you know you're going to die. When you see this happen, you will then die. We would live in dread of that moment. (laughs) In fact, we would try not to see it, right? You try not to, I I don't want to see it. Most people, when they're talking about the way that they would like to die, is they don't want to see it coming, right? They don't want to know that it's about to happen. The dread of death is something that terrifies all of us we're afraid of pain we're afraid of what it'll be like we don't know that fear drives so much of what we do but Simeon wasn't afraid he lived in hope he desired to see the day where he could depart because then he would see the Lord's Christ Simeon knew that his His death was precipitated by this specific event. But he awaited this revelation with great anticipation. And then he sees him, the child of a poor couple. We know that Mary and Joseph are poor because they offer, as part of their sacrifices, pair turtle doves or two pigeons which is what is recommended for those who can't afford to buy the more expensive sacrifice. Mary and Joseph are just this poor couple doing normal things to the outside world and to everyone that they encountered as they go into Jerusalem. There's no there's no bells or whistles, there's no trumpets, there's no grand entrance unlike what Christ Will receive when he returns to Jerusalem at the end of his life. Now he's coming much like a regular child amongst regular parents. But Simeon sees the baby and he knows through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting when you think about this, was it doesn't say that Simeon was the only devout and just person in Jerusalem. You no, know, he's not Lot, you know, in, in Sodom, you know. He's not the only guy that's available. Simeon is amongst devout and just people. I mean, we were introduced to another one a little later, Anna, the prophetess. And I anticipate, or I I predict, or I I think, or I analyze that there were probably very devout people entering the temple that day who missed it. They missed the Lord's Christ. He was just a baby, nothing would draw them to it. It's just a normal scene. Ah, uh, they're just coming and getting the sign of the covenant, which maybe for them it stirred up in, in them. Oh, this is beautiful. Like you see a baby and you're like, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that nice? And maybe it stirs up for them a kind of a religious devotion of, wow, this is the promise of God, the, the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he was going to bless the whole world through his descendants. But they missed him, they didn't see. But Simeon did. Simeon saw the baby. And he took him up into his arms. And by the way, I don't know what this scene is like. I don't know if Jesus had just been circumcised. I don't know what's going on here. I'm not, it doesn't give us much detail in that. I don't know if he just like ran up and stole the baby. I, I feel like that was probably not what he did. Um, hope so. Because uh, I imagine Mary might have a different reaction. Um, but however it went, he took the child. Maybe Mary and Joseph thought that he was just going to give the child a blessing. He was just a kind old man. Let me bless this child. No, this child blesses me. Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace. Now, if you heard those words coming out of an old man's mouth as he's holding your child, you're probably like, Put my hands just, just so in case you de- you depart in peace, I can catch my baby in peace. Um, I don't know what their initial reaction is, but we're not given too much about what Mary and Joseph really think about this whole situation. We're just told that they marvel. Notice what Simeon says. Simeon says, "My eyes have seen." Your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This first line, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is interesting. Because he's looking at a baby. He's not looking at the fall of the Roman Empire. He's not looking at some great warrior Or some magnificent king who has conquered a territory. He's looking at a child. My eyes have seen your salvation. But then he has a modified quote of Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 10. And if you look at that verse, it says, uh, we can show that on the screen real quick. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He's saying, my eyes have seen your salvation and you've prepared it before all peoples. He's modifying and citing Isaiah. But then he also says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is another citation of Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. These are heavy citations that Simeon is making here. Isaiah 49 specifically is one of the servant songs. Isaiah 52 is a servant song. This is the songs of the servant of God, who in Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant who bears the iniquity of Israel. Simeon says, he's here. This is him. But I find it interesting that he lands in that Isaiah 49 reference. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth so much of the messianic anticipation and preparation was for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But throughout the prophets and throughout God's word, his promise is not just to a nation state, not just to a territory, not just to a political regime, But something that goes beyond, something that expands, something that is reaching more than just Israelites, it's including Gentiles. Now, for many, they thought that, yes, the Gentile nations would become subservient to the nation of Israel. They would come in, there's these great prophecies of the nations of Israel flowing into Jerusalem and bringing their, their gifts to Jerusalem and, and serving Jerusalem and being, in a sense, a part of God's kingdom. But there is this expansion that is being hinted at here and being declared that it is going to be much more than what they think. And maybe this is what causes the marvel, the, the stupefaction of Mary and Joseph not really having a response other than to go, wow, what's this about? Earlier in the passage, uh, in the chapter, when the shepherds come to tell Mary and Joseph, Mary treasures all those things and she ponders them. We're not told what Joseph is doing at that time. Maybe Joseph is too preoccupied with got these random shepherds at my door what do i do uh oh that's nice angels talk to you sounds good how about you go away now like maybe joseph was just kind of distracted at that point i don't know maybe now he's starting to get it it's like wait this is what is going on what's happening The events sounding, uh, surrounding Jesus were incredible. Mary and Joseph, they still had room to marvel at all that is transpiring. I mean, to be honest, maybe it was all they could do. They had just been given so much, they just had a child there. You know, did this. Thing. They're going through their purification. They had to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. It was a whole ordeal. It was kind of complicated. Then there were these shepherds, and then there was angels, and then there was it was just a lot. Maybe that's all they had room for is to marvel. But maybe they were marveling at the expansiveness of God's salvation through this little baby. What do you mean? This little child? is going to be a light to the nations? to all, will bring God's salvation. Not just to the people of Israel. This is the normal understanding. This is their, this makes some sense. Ah, yes, to the people of Israel. No, to the nations. To the nations. Wait a minute. I got to rethink some things here. And all the while they're doing this, Simeon decides that, you know, he's saying this beautiful song, but it was getting a little bit too chipper. A little too happy. And he kind of rains on their parade a little bit. I don't think that's what he's actually thinking. I'm just being silly. But he does give this kind of ominous warning as an addendum to the song that he just sang to them. He says, this child is appointed. And by the way, he's speaking directly to Mary. I can imagine that as he is handing the baby back and he's looking into her eyes and it's just this moment between them. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Every aspect of what Christ is going to do is going to be marvelous, including its opposition everything about Christ's ministry is going to cause amazement, including when people stand against him and work against him. Maybe it's probably, maybe it's the most surprising aspect about just how opposed to salvation people will be. It's interesting. He says that he is appointed for the fall and rising of many. And in English, we hear that and we immediately impose a negative view upon that. But it's possible that he is actually giving a double meaning that this is going to be both a fall in a negative sense and also a fall in a positive sense. That there's going to be these these dual meanings to this falling and rising. It might be an allusion to where Simeon had been quoting Isaiah 49.7 because it references in Isaiah 49.7 that the kings of the earth shall arise and the princes shall fall down and prostrate. So maybe he's kind of pulling again from Isaiah a little bit. But I think that when we have this understanding of the double meaning of each word, the fall and the rise, for many, it will cause their fall, that they will prostrate themselves before God, they will humble themselves, and they will say, this is the Lord. For others, their pride and haughtiness will cause them to be thrown down in judgment. For some, as they prostrate themselves before the Lord, he will exalt them and lift them up. And for others, because they have been cast down, they will not be able to rise. But what will be risen, what will be shown is the thoughts of their hearts. It will be displayed to all. It will be shown so that all may know that they do not trust the Lord, that they have fallen due to their own pride. Next we get this couple verses about a gal named Anna. And Anna can also be translated as Hannah. Um, so it's also very interesting there's a lot of allusions back to Old Testament and there's also some differenti- differentiation on how old she is um, in the ESV it translates it as she is 84 years old but in older translations and trans- some other translations they have it as that she was uh, a widow for 84 years <clears throat> I don't fall either way she's an older woman Let's let's just go that way. She had been an old woman and a widow for a long time. She was only with her husband for seven years, and he probably died. It doesn't seem that there was a divorce here. That's not what's being indicated. It, It indicates that she's a widow, so her husband died. And since the time that her husband died, she began to live at the temple. And she fasted, and she prayed. The act of fasting is something that we are sometimes a little perplexed by because we don't quite get what the point is for many of us in the West. It's a much more common thing in other cultures to fast, but it's best understood as a recognition that all things aren't right. And so I'm reaching out to God, replacing my eating of food with reaching out to the Lord. And so, Anna. The widow lives her life in worship and prayer because fasting is a form of worship. She was asserting, though, with the fasting. And it doesn't say that she fasted for 84 years. She had periods of fasting where she would, she would go before the Lord and she would plead before him, saying, things are not well in my life. Things are not well in Israel. Things are not well in the world. Come, Lord God, come. Maybe she heard the singing. Another older gentleman singing to a young baby with confused parents. But it says that she came up just at that very hour just at the right moment and she saw she began to give thanks to god but she didn't waste a moment she thanked god and she told others did you hear did you hear the redemption of jerusalem is here that phrase redemption of jerusalem it has a a pair, the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, Anna for the redemption of Jerusalem, and in one baby they are met, and they are made complete. She wanted everyone to know, and she didn't waste a moment. We get the last couple verses, 39 and 40, which is just going to kind of give us a summary and a conclusion to what has happened to this part of the story. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. This was probably about 40-ish days after Christ's birth because they had to wait for the days of purification to be done. Then, it says, the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. It's interesting that this these two verses are given. It, it, it does a very good job of summarizing some of the main ideas in these this story of the two older people who recognize the consolation and redemption of Israel in Jesus. It starts off with a proclamation that they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Something that Luke makes sure he does in the telling of the story is he says they followed the law. The law is good. The law is important. But there's something better here. So they observed the law. And then it ends with the last sentence and the favor of God was upon him. It reminded me when I read that of John one seventeen. I don't have that in the notes but John 1.17 where John reminds us that the law came through Moses but grace came through Jesus. God's Grace is upon Christ. And because God's grace is upon Jesus, he freely gives it through his life. He gives it to people through healing and through ministries of mercy and through teaching. He gives out the grace of God freely to all those who would hear and accept. But he also gives that grace freely to all those who place their trust in him even today. Christ is still displaying and dispensing the grace of God to all who come to him. So I want to leave this section of scripture just to give you a, I'll give you a little summary of what happens next. Jesus is in the temple again when he's around 12 years old. His parents had gone to Jerusalem uh, pretty much every year for the festival that would be, uh, festivals that would happen for the feast of Passover specifically. And um, they We're there, and you have to understand, Passover, big time, lots of people. They lose Jesus. They start going. They're like, oh, Jesus is probably with his friends. I don't know what they're thinking. i got to be honest, and we're not told what they're thinking. They just kind of start traveling home and then realize that he's not there, and they're like, oh, we just left the Son of God somewhere. That's not good. Um, So they go back, and they find him, and Jesus is talking with the rabbis. And the rabbis are asking him questions and he's giving really good answers. And then Mary's like, where were you? Joseph's like, what are you doing? Well, didn't you know I would be in my father's house doing the work of my father? The section ends with two things. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I think it's interesting that Luke keeps saying that about Mary and about Joseph, and about everything that is happening when Jesus is a child. They don't quite get it, but they don't forget it. And they think about it, and they try to understand. So so many of us, we just let things go by us. And it's so easy to do that because of how fast things happen in life. But I think we could take a cue from Mary to really think about the things that God does and to treasure them and to remember them but then it also ends and jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and man again there's this emphasis of the favor of god upon christ so this is great story this is encouraging in a lot of different ways, but what, what should we go home with? What should you go home and understand? I want you to understand two things out of this passage. The first, going directly to what Simeon had said to Mary, Simeon says that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many of Israel. If you want to be raised up, you must fall down before Christ. I was real tempted to read, like, almost the whole fourth chapter of James after this quote here, this uh, thing, but I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses, okay? James says, he begins the chapter talking about, okay, you guys are fighting, and you guys are quarreling, and you're not getting what you're asking for. I wonder why. It's probably because you guys are jerks. He doesn't say that. It's not that exact. That's the Ryan translation. It's not found in the Greek. It's a paraphrase. Um But then he starts talking a little bit more, and he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We all need a little more humility before the Lord. We all need a little more posture of falling before him. because the truth is is that if we don't fall to our knees now we will be brought to our knees in judgment that's not what everyone wants to hear we all want to hear that we're actually just really awesome we're all just so great and you know the whole journey we're all the we're all Aladdin we're all just a diamond in the rough we can all get into the cave of wonders and find whatever we need we are amazing, don't you know? I'm just I just need a little polishing. What ends up happening is we spend this great amount of time polishing these hearts of stone to these beautiful, magnificent marble statues that are impenetrable to the grace of God. We need to humble ourselves and recognize our sin and our need for the redemption and consolation of Israel. We need Christ in our lives more than we need a bigger paycheck. We need Christ in our lives more than we need a new governor. We need Christ in our lives more than we need good standing before the world because we say all the right things and we present ourselves in a presentable way to the whims of hard-hearted, polished, stone individuals. My friends, we need a new heart. We need a heart of flesh. And no matter how much you polish your heart of stone, you'll never turn it into one. It has to be given. So if you want to be raised up to be with Christ, if you want to enjoy the salvation that comes from him, you must fall down in humility before him. Lastly, this was the first thing I noticed when I read through this passage, but I wanted it to stick with you. Salvation is found in a person, not just a circumstance. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. How could he say that? He's just seeing baby Jesus. Christ hasn't even died and been resurrected yet. How can he say that he has seen the Lord's salvation? The circumstances aren't right yet. It hasn't all been done. Christ hasn't uttered it is finished. How can he say that he's seen the Lord's salvation because it's not just about the circumstance. It's the person. Acts 4.11. Acts 4.11 tells us this. It's 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's talking to the Jewish people. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Beginning of chapter 2 in Luke, Caesar is brought in and introduced and told to us. And we are reminded, and people who are reading this in the first century, they are immediately brought to the idea that when Caesar... When Caesar made proclamations, it was as if the Son of God himself made a proclamation. When the Romans would come into a new territory and take it over and become the new rulers of that area, they would often say, Salvation has come. Listen to the Euangelion, the good news, the gospel of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There is no other name under heaven that men are saved by except for that of Augustus. Augustus, Augustus took the chaos that was the ancient world and he brought it into order and he gave it semblance and he gave it all that is needed for peace to reign What a peace the Romans brought, huh? Crucified Israelites up and down the road leading to Jerusalem. Dead bodies piled up. Methods of execution perfected. Ah, yes, the peace of Rome. The peace of Christ also brought a crucifix, but he didn't crucify others. He was crucified himself. It is within him that we find our salvation. We don't find it in anything else. And here's what's so amazing about that. We can be in any situation. Our entire world could come crumbling down All infrastructure go away. All government destroyed. All services. Sorry, no Netflix, no no Hulu, no entertainment, no football on Sundays, no food chain. And yet we, in Christ, have still found salvation. How? How can that be? Because our salvation is not what we are surrounded by in the world. It's in who we know and what he brings. Find your peace and salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. Cling to him. Because here's the beautiful thing. As weak as our ability to cling to things is, God's ability is in, Immeasurable. And the hand of God will never fail you. When you place your trust in Him, not only do you cling to Him, He clings to you. And He will never let you go, no matter where you are. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, where he said that he had been given a a thorn in the flesh and he had asked God to remove it from him three times. Not a bad thing, by the way, to ask God to remove burdens from you. That's okay. You can do that, and I would say that you should ask god to remove burdens from you but if the lord says no and he does often because sometimes what we desire is not what god has in mind and sometimes our circumstances don't feel like salvation but the truth of the matter is that you as long as you trust in christ you have grace Paul says, the Lord spoke back to me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Salvation is found in Christ. So cling to him above all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and died for us. We thank you for the witness of the Holy Scriptures, recorded for us and preserved for us through thousands of years. Superintended by the Holy Spirit and given to us so that we might have the record of your your faithfulness and your, your mercy and your grace to us. Lord, may we be able today to face whatever life has for us with confidence. Not based on the circumstances that we find ourselves in or the things that are going on around us or even within our own bodies or what we might be experiencing in our life, in our jobs, in our families. No matter where we are today, God, may we find your grace and your mercy are abundant in Christ. May we cling to him and hold fast to him that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we know we have salvation and that you hold on to us. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you, and God bless.